So without a doubt, we all have some questions for Jesus, right? I don't know what those questions are. You have some personal questions, I'm sure, but I know that we all have questions. Why did this happen this way in our lives? When uh, will our prayers ever get answered? Why didn't the Braves win more World Series in the 90s? I don't know. There's questions that we're just going to have to ask Jesus one day. But have you ever stopped to think, what if the flip side of that's true? I know that we have questions for Jesus. Have you ever thought what questions Jesus might have for us? See, I'm convinced that he does have questions for us. And a big part of why is that in the four Gospels that make up our account of Jesus' life, he's recorded as asking over 300 different questions. That's right, 300 different questions that we have recorded just in the four Gospels that we get the account of his life from. Martin Copenhaver, who is a retired president of Andover Newton Theological Seminary, claims in his book, Jesus is the Question, that Jesus was four times as likely to ask a question as he was to actually answer one directly, and he was 20 times as likely to offer an indirect answer as a direct one. That's just how Jesus operated. He asked questions. The questions that he asked were very pointed and provoking questions. They, they were designed not just to ask a question because Jesus didn't know the answer. Of course he knew the answer. They were designed to teach his disciples and teach his followers more about who he was and their relationship with him. In fact, I believe that these questions were Jesus' primary way that he taught his followers. He used these questions to grow their faith. And I think he still does that today. That's why, starting today, we're going to have a three-week series that we're calling Questions from Jesus. And what we're going to do over those three weeks is look at different questions that Jesus asked. Now, obviously, there's no way that we're going to get 300 questions in three weeks. But what we're going to do is we're going to lean into questions outside of just our Sunday morning time together. Throughout the next couple of weeks, if you follow our social media pages, we're going to have different pastors take about five minutes and talk about other questions that Jesus asked. But for our time together this morning, what we're going to do is look at what I think is probably the most important question Jesus asked. I think in this question, we see him teaching us who he is and about our relationship with him. That question is, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? See, I think this is the most important question that he ever asked to his disciples. And it's a question that even when people aren't asking, everybody is answering. Everybody has an opinion on who Jesus is, doesn't they? You, don't, you rarely find somebody who's neutral about Jesus, who, who doesn't have an opinion. Some say that Jesus was a teacher, and if you look at his teachings and the morality, he was so far ahead of his time. Look at some people and they say, oh, Jesus was a, a good example that we follow. Uh, some people say that he was a, a religious leader that changed the course of history. But the point is, is that nobody was really uh, unopinionated when it came to Jesus. It's true today. That was true back in Jesus' time. So let's do this. Let's jump to the text where we see Jesus ask his disciples this question. So if you got your Bibles, go with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, we're going to start reading in verse 13. So when you have it, you can follow along with me. Matthew chapter 16 verse 13 says this. 
When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But you, he asked them, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave his disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. So, so this text here in Matthew chapter 16, is where we see Jesus ask that question, who do you say that I am? And this text is really at a critical turning point in Jesus's ministry. By the time we get to Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has been preaching and teaching for a while. He is a well-known figure in the nation of Israel. His fame has spread all over the countryside, especially in the northern part of the country in the Galilee. It's mainly the common people, those who worked for a living that had come to love and embrace him. They saw his miracles. They heard his teaching. And as word spread from village to village, you can almost hear people ask each other, hey, have you heard about Jesus yet? Have you seen him yet? All around that northern region of the Galilee, men, women, and children discussed him and began to wonder who he really was. But most importantly, the religious leaders were wondering who Jesus really was. See, they had heard about Jesus, and they didn't like what they had heard. Just a little bit earlier in Matthew's gospel, there had been a bitter confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders. They had accused Jesus of doing miracles not by power from God, but by power from Satan. They called him, they told him he was a prince of demons, Beelzebub. In essence, they looked at Jesus and said, you are straight from hell. Well, that's where we come to here in Matthew chapter 16. He has been rejected by the religious leaders and his fate is sealed. At the time we get to the end of chapter 16, uh, we're going to see that the shadow of the cross is going to start to loom over Jesus' life. After Matthew 16, he begins to point to the cross. And although the common people had heard him gladly, they still didn't know who he was. They liked him, but they hadn't yet come to the place to worship him. To them, he was a great teacher, a great miracle worker, and nothing more. But it's right here at this critical turning point that we begin with an amazingly important but really often overlooked phrase. Go back to chapter 16, verse 13, and look what it says. It says that Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, I know that doesn't seem like an important phrase, but when you understand some context, it really is. See, Caesarea Philippi is a city that lies about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And it's here where Jesus was headed with his disciples. I believe that he was taking his disciples here because Caesarea Philippi is a city at the base of Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon, in my opinion, is where Jesus was transfigured in Matthew chapter 17. So he leaves the Sea of Galilee. He go, he's going to Mount Hermon to be transfigured in front of his disciples and he comes to Caesarea Philippi. 
Caesarea Philippi was a very Roman and a very pagan city in the otherwise religiously conservative nation of Israel. It was really, in essence, a pagan worship center for the entire Galilee region. It was built by Herod the Great, you may remember his name, and it was originally named Penaeus. And it was named Penaeus because the city was built as a tribute to the half-man, half-goat Greek god that you know as Pan. You've seen a picture of Pan, right? The half-man, half-goat plays his flute, uh, Pan's labyrinth. That's who this city was named after. It was named Penaeus. But more than Pan, Caesarea Philippi had monuments to hundreds of different pagan gods. Matter of fact, if you Google Caesarea Philippi and look at images, some of the first images you're going to see is of a mountainside that has carved out shrines all over the face of it. And in these hundreds of carved out shrines, there would have been a pagan idol that Jesus and his disciples saw. More than just the pagan shrines for the pagan idols, there were pagan temples. There were at least three temples there, a temple to Zeus, a temple to Pan, and a temple to the emperor himself. This was a center of worship where they would walk into the temple, grab salt, throw it on the altar, and declare that Caesar is Lord. But the most striking feature of Caesarea Philippi wasn't the shrines carved into the mountain. It wasn't the temples devoted to other gods. It was a large cave or grotto that was, uh, that was known as the gates of hell. It was a deep cave, a deep grotto that went to an underground spring, super, super deep in the ground. And the people in that day could not get to the spring down there. It was the deepest place that they could see in the region. And so they said, hey, this is the gates of hell. This is how you get down to the underworld into Pan's Labyrinth. And a matter of fact, this was maybe the most important religious pagan site in the city because they would sacrifice virgins in the grotto by throwing them to the death, to their deaths in the spring. And when they would would see the blood flow out of the spring into the city, they would know that the sacrifice had been accepted. And it was right here in this Roman pagan city that Jesus chooses to reveal his divine identity as the Messiah, the Son of God. Why would he do that? Well, let me just read you a quote from Pastor H.B. Charles Jr. I think he absolutely nails it. Pastor Charles says, here's where the great confession was made, Caesarea Philippi. It did not take place in Rome because Jesus did not need man's political endorsement. It did not take place in Athens because Jesus did not need academic certification. It did not take place in Jerusalem because Jesus did not need the approval of the religious establishment. Jesus took his disciples to a key headquarter of false religion. And once there, he did not preach a sermon, make a speech, or start a debate. Jesus asked two big questions. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? But who do you say that I am? Christianity is not about cultural, political, or theological viewpoints. It's about Jesus. Man, he nails it, right? That's why this happens in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus chose this city, this place, to reveal his divine identity to his disciples to make a point he wanted them to understand. And a matter of fact, when you begin to understand that context of Caesarea Philippi, that confession that we read that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, takes on so much greater significance. 
right? Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? He says that because he's standing with a backdrop of literally hundreds of pagan gods saying, well, where do I fit in among all of these? When Jesus later tells Peter after his confession, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it, he was literally standing in front of the supposed gates of hell in this pagan worship center. And this mountain that the city was at the foot of, the mountain that was the home of the grotto, the mountain that had all of the shrines carved into it, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John in the very next chapter on top of this mountain and is transfigured before them where he pulls back the veil of his flesh and they see his full divinity shine through. Jesus says, that's not what God's look like. This is what God looks like. When you see all of that, you understand, wow, this is why Jesus chose to ask this question in this place. But now, understanding that, let's turn our attention to the point of this passage, right? Jesus' question and Peter's confession. Now, we said that the most important question that Jesus asked was, who do, who do you say that I am? But that's not the first question he asked in this passage, is it? If you go back and look carefully, the first question that Jesus asked is, who do people say that I am? Who do all these people who we've been ministering to, performing miracles for, preaching to, who do these people wandering around this city, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? And if you look at the question, uh, the disciples answer it. It says, they said, some say. Now, I love that phrase, they said, some say. What do we know from that? We know that the disciples, all of them, had been out among the people and with their own ears, they had heard speculation about who Jesus was. They said, some say that you are John the Baptist. You are a great preacher. You are a preacher of holiness and repentance who are taking the Pharisees the task. You must be John the Baptist. Others said, Elijah. You're a great miracle worker. You perform miracles like nobody has seen since Elijah was taken up to heaven. And like Elijah, you will stand against the wicked powers of the government. Others said, he's Jeremiah. He was a man of God, full of love and compassion for God and his people. Or others said, maybe you're just another prophet. At least you're somebody who's been sent by God. That's what the disciples said, well, some say. Now, you and I probably know that when people say they said or some people are saying, there's oftentimes some, I believe that too. So what's really interesting to me is that when Jesus asked, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am, and we see that they replied, they answered, we think that maybe some of the disciples weren't sure either. Maybe some of the disciples said, no, I could see that he was a reincarnated John the Baptist. Or maybe he is a reincarnated Elijah. I don't know. But then Jesus, not willing to let them put their answer off on what some say, he narrows it down. Jesus was not concerned with the public opinion of his identity. Jesus was concerned with the disciples' personal understanding of his identity. And that's when he says, but you... Who do you say that I am? Now, I think that this is where it gets really important, right? Who do you say that I am? 
I'm not concerned with public opinion. There's a wide uh, range of public opinion, right? Even to this day, some people would say that Jesus is an excellent moral example, that he is a teacher of peace and love, that he's a political activist who overthrew the greedy Rome. He is a prophet sent from God. But the thing is, when Jesus asks, who do we say that he is, I really don't think there's that many options. We have a lot of opinions, but I don't think all those opinions are valid. When Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? I think there's really only three options that we can answer with, with any kind of logical coherency. And here's why. Jesus, in no uncertain terms, throughout the Gospels, made exclusive claims that he was God in the flesh. He says, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. He said, before Abraham was, I am. He acknowledged here that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus made claims about himself that he was God. And because of those claims, Jesus can only be one of three things. First thing is, if he made a claim that he was God and he wasn't, but he really thought he was, he was crazy. Right? What else do you call somebody who thinks they're God but clearly isn't? You don't say that they're a good teacher. You don't call them a political activist. You said that person has a mental illness. They need to go see a doctor. I think that's got to be true of Jesus as well. If he said he was God, thought he was God, but he wasn't God, he was nuts. Another option is he said he was God. He knew he wasn't God. Well, then that doesn't make him crazy. That makes him just a con artist, right? He willingly swindled people. He can't be a good moral teacher. He can't be a prophet sent by God. If he willingly lied to everyone to their face, pretending to be God, knowing full well he wasn't, he's not worth following at all. He's a con man. But there's a third option. If he said he was God, and it turns out he actually was, then he's the Christ the Messiah. I think those are the only three answers that we can have. He was either crazy because he said he was God and he's wrong. He said he was God and he's not and he's a con man. Or he said he was God and he was. Because Jesus said uh, that he was God, he can only be those three things. Now, I just want to be honest with you, that's, that's not something that I came up with and discovered. That's been a thing for a while now. Matter of fact, the person who made that argument about the identity of Jesus popular was author theologian C.S. Lewis. You may know him from the Chronicles of Narnia. This is how C.S. Lewis says it. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. C.S. Lewis says... That's the one thing we can't say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let, not, let, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. So who do you say that Jesus is? I don't think you have that many options. But see, 
when we understand and say that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, God made flesh, what Jesus goes on to show us in that conversation with Peter is it's that personal understanding only comes through a supernatural revelation, right? He says, who do you say that I am? This time the disciples don't answer, only Peter does. And Peter answers and he says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus answers him and says, Simon, son of Jonah, blessed are you. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See, understanding who Jesus is has to be more than mere agreement with historical fact. It's not just when your mind understands, oh yeah, I get it, that makes sense, he must be God. But it's the moment that your heart believes that. See, I think that there's a lot of people who, who are in uh, our churches today who mentally say, oh yeah, it makes sense, Jesus must be God, but yet they haven't been brought to new life in Christ. They've never had that supernatural revelation. This is why we talk about being born again. I know we don't use that phrase often, but that is an important picture of what it means to understand who Jesus is. This idea of being born again actually comes from Jesus himself. In the Gospel of John, early on in chapter 3, he has a conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus, and he tells Nicodemus, the only way that you get to heaven is by being born again. He's talking about that supernatural revelation, that spiritual encounter in which not just our mind are convinced, but our hearts are transformed and we believe. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. It's hard to understand this if you haven't experienced it. Maybe right now you're asking yourself, well, how do I know? Do I just agree with this mentally or have I had this experience? First thing I would say is if you've had this experience, you probably know you've had this experience. But I get that if you haven't, it can kind of be hard to understand. But what I can help you understand is the fruit that this supernatural revelation will bring into your life. Here's what I mean. When you have, like Peter, this supernatural revelation of who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God, it's going to bring about a change in your life. It's going to bring about a change in your actions. It's going to bring about a change in your attitudes. And maybe most importantly, it's going to bring about a change in your affection. Your heart cannot remain indifferent when you see Jesus for who he is. And that kind of keeps rolling because after Peter confesses who Jesus is and Jesus says, man, you didn't figure this out through flesh and blood, but you were revealed it from heaven, he then begins to give uh, Peter a new identity. So this real understanding of who Jesus is gives us a brand new identity. Peter was given a new name, right? He says, no longer are you going to be Simon, but now you're going to be Peter, signifying that he, ha he now has a new identity. And I think that's so important for us to remember is that when we see Jesus for who he is and our hearts are transformed through the supernatural work of God, we are made new. And part of us being made new are those new actions, attitudes, and affections that we've talked about. But it's more than that. It is, an, it is a transformation of the self. 
And that's why we say this has to be a supernatural revelation because information can change us on the outside. You can give us new information and we can change our habits, but real transformation changes us on the inside and eventually works its way out. This new understanding of who Jesus is brings a new identity and a transformed self. And then that new identity will bring with it a new relationship. You see, when Jesus gave Peter this new name, he is asserting his lordship over him. And now, for those of us who know Jesus as Savior and who have been given a new identity in Christ, Jesus is now our Lord. That word Lord means master. And so here's what I want you to get. Here's what you need to understand. This is so important for those of us who live in the Bible Belt South. You can't believe that Jesus is God in the flesh and continue to try to run your own life your own way. That's just not an option. If he is who he says he is, which is the very son of God sent to save the world, then you've got to listen to him. Matter of fact, if you go read in Matthew chapter 17, just one chapter over, when they go up on Mount Hermon and Jesus is transfigured and Elijah and Moses show up, Peter says, wow, I want to worship. Let's build tabernacles. And then a voice from heaven, the voice of the Father says, this is my son, listen to him. If you see Jesus for who he is, you've got to listen to him. A faith that does not lead to a confession of Jesus as your Lord, as your master, doesn't lead to heaven either. This new understanding brings us a new identity and it brings us a new relationship with Jesus as our Lord. That's why this question and this answer is so important. Matter of fact, Peter's answer to the question, who do you say I am? You are the Messiah, the Son of God. That answer is the foundation of the church. All the way back then and still today. If you look back at our passage in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus tells Peter, on this rock I will build my church, he's not talking about the mountain that they're standing in front of and would eventually climb on. He's not even, as some have believed, talking about Peter himself, whose name also means rock. When Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church, the rock he's referring to is Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah. The rock that the church is built on is the truth of who Jesus is. Jesus is the only way to the Father. Jesus is the only way to heaven. And when we understand that, that answer, that confession, the rock the church is built on, it moves us to worship. When we see the exclusivity of Jesus as the only way to heaven, the only way to the Father, how can we not help but worship that God would send his Son to wrap himself in human flesh to take our place on our cross, that he would be raised three days later and we might have a chance to be forgiven of our sin and given eternal life. But also, this rock moves us to mission. Because when we understand that Jesus is the only way to the Father, Jesus is the only way to heaven, it compels us to go and take that news, that, mes that message, that confession of who he is to the lost world around us.
But for you today, the question you have to ask is the same question Jesus, uh, Jesus asked his disciples. Who do you say that I am? You've got to answer that question. And here's the thing. You may not be asking it, but you are answering it. Everybody answers the question, who is Jesus? Listen, God doesn't have grandchildren. Your mama can't answer this question for you. Your daddy can't answer this question for you. You have to wrestle with the question, who is Jesus? And you have to answer it for yourself. And when I say that even if you're not asking it, you are answering it, you look at your life. Look at your life right now. Look at those actions. Look at those attitudes. Look at those affections. What do they tell you about how you are answering this question? Are you seeing Jesus just as a good teacher and you're trying to live up to his example? Do you see him as another prophet that's one of many ways to heaven? Or do you understand that Jesus is who he said he is, Son of God in the flesh, and that that has been a supernatural understanding and you've been born again and now he's your Lord and you are following him. How do you answer that question? Because the good news is it's not too late to change your answer right now. Matter of fact, maybe now for the very first time in your life, you feel the Spirit of God moving in your heart to truly understand who Jesus is. And so I want to encourage you right now to cry out to Him saying, Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe you did what you came to do, which is to die on a cross, be raised from the dead, so that I might be forgiven of my sins and made right with my Father in heaven. Jesus, save me. And if you cry that out, he does and he will save. Reach out to us right now in the comments, in the chat. Let us know, hey, I need somebody to pray with me. I need somebody to talk with me. That's what we're here for. We want you to be convinced of who Jesus is and that Jesus is your Savior and your Lord. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for the time you've given us to be together around your word. And I pray right now for those who are struggling with who you are. They've seen you as a good teacher. They've seen you as a good example. They've honored you through financial gifts or reading their Bible, praying and coming to church. But today for the first time, they've seen who you are, not by flesh and blood, but by the Father in heaven revealing Jesus to them. And so, God, I pray that today you would bring their hearts to life, that they would cry out for forgiveness and salvation and find new life in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.